Well, welcome, everybody. I'm Mary Caldor. Um, I'm a professor in the Department for International Development. And as many of you know, we do a lot of work on humanitarian issues, uh, both in our teaching and our research. Um, so today, I think we've got Vicki Hawkins, which is a very timely and important issue the whole issue of the challenges to humanitarianism that is coming from the deliberate targeting of civilians and the deliberate targeting actually of hospitals, which is a really t tragic thing to happen. And Vicky Hawkins is the executive director of uh, Médecins Sans Frontières UK, and no one could be better placed than to talk to us about it and about how people working on the ground really experience, if you like, the crisis of humanitarianism. So I'm very pleased to introduce Vicky. And when she's finished, Stuart Gordon from our own department, who manages the course on humanitarianism, will say a few words in response. So Vicky. Okay. And I should add that Vicky's very kindly come, despite having a horrible cold and feeling quite free. <laughs> As you will hear from I hope, I hope I make it the whole way through. Okay. Um, so, I can't see everybody. Before we start tonight, I just wanted to um, show you... Uh, yeah, I wanted to focus the minds on exactly what we've been experiencing over, over the last year um, in some of the most sort of intense and violent conflicts um, in the world and, uh, yeah, and show you a, a little bit of footage directly from, from those locations. Okay, so I think that gives you a little bit of an idea of what we've experienced in the last year or so. Um, this has been an exceptional year for MSF, although we often end up saying that at the end of each successive year. The last year has been an exceptional year. It's been particularly challenging, but certainly the last 15 months is like nothing I've ever experienced in my time with MSF, which is an organization I've been working with for, for 18 years. I'm standing before you tonight. I'm, I'm not an expert in international humanitarian law, I'm not even a doctor, but I have spent considerable amounts of time in the field with MSF coordinating our medical projects. As a field coordinator, I'm the person who's responsible for creating the humanitarian space in which we work, the space that we so vitally need if we are to bring care to some of the most vulnerable people on the planet, some of the people that you've seen tonight in that footage. My talk tonight is going to have three parts. I'm going to focus on those specific attacks which we've experienced in 2015 and 2016. I'm going to say something about the consequences and then I'm going to spend most of my time on how MSF as a medical humanitarian organization is grappling to respond. Starting with Kunduz on the 3rd of October last year. So the Kunduz Trauma Center 
from those medics I know that have worked in Kunduz really described it as, as a jewel in MSF's crown. It was a very sophisticated facility that was providing care to over a million people. Since 2011, the trauma center had conducted over 15,000 free surgeries, and in a medically depleted area, it was really a vital healthcare resource for the population of, of northeastern Afghanistan. Many of those surgeries were war-wounded, war, war but also um, issues as, as, as simple, let's say, as, as, as traffic accidents we had through the, through the doors of, of that trauma center. MSF had, had not been present in Afghanistan for a number of years. We, we left after the murder of five of our staff in the west of the country. When we re-entered the country in 2009, we did so through a very careful negotiation process. We talked to all the parties to the conflict and got their explicit agreement for us to restart work. Um, so it really was a, a classic example of what humanitarians talk about when they, when they talk about negotiated access. We had agreements with all the parties. We identified our facilities very clearly, as you saw from that footage. Every single medical facility in Afghanistan is a no-weapon zone, which means that all military of any type, be they Afghan, be they US, be they British, be they Taliban, had to leave their guns at the door. And that was generally, I say not, not, com not completely, but generally respected. The trauma center itself was not intended to be on the front line. This is an important fact because a big trauma center like that, a sophisticated military facility, you would never normally put on a front line. You would have a field hospital that then has the ability to refer patients back to more, more sophisticated medical facilities. But, of course, Kunduz was unexpectedly taken. Nobody expected the front line to shift in the way that it did. And so it really became uh, a medical facility which was at the heart of, of the conflict in northeastern Afghanistan at, at the end of September. The evening of October the 2nd was the first calm moment in Kunduz after a week of fighting. The MSF team had treated 376 wounded in the preceding days and the staff were getting ready to proceed with surgical, surgical procedures that they had put on hold until then because it was just simply too chaotic and they, they, they weren't able to, to go ahead with the operations that patients so desperately needed. People were under anesthetic at the time of the attack. From 2 o'clock onwards, in the span of, of nearly an hour, the Kunduz Trauma Center was hit by precise and repeated U.S. airstrikes which destroyed the central part of the building. We put in the first call to the U.S. command center and to the Afghan government within about 10 minutes of the attack happening. Repeated calls. The attack was not called off until nearly fully an hour later. And this, despite the fact that the GPS coordinates had been shared with all parties to the conflict, there was no question that that was an unknown, um, unrecognized facility. This is the trauma center. Um, the attacks that night killed 42 people in the hospital. 24 of them were patients, 14 of them were staff, and four were caretakers. You can see that that central part, which is essentially where the operating theaters and the emergency room, was completely obliterated. It was really 
the scene of a horror movie. Patients were, were burned in their beds and others were flown, were, were mown down as, as they fled from the, from the burning building. In terms of our response, I mean, obviously, we immediately denounced the attack. Uh, we called for an independent investigation. Um, and after a few days, we, we, we actually tried to mobilize um, a, a very lesser-known body called the International Humanitarian Fact-Finding Commission. And it is uh, an entity which is grounded in the Geneva Conventions and was created specifically to perform independent investigation of possible breaches of international humanitarian law. It's been in existence for 20 years. It's never been activated. Um, for us, this was the most appropriate, appropriate body to, to turn to. Um, we also uh, conducted a media campaign and a petition on, to President, directly to President Obama demanding that the U.S. consent to the IHFFC investigation. But to date, that call has, has been unheeded. And so far, um, the only investigation that we have in answer to our call for transparency and accountability as to the circumstances of the attack is a U.S. military-led internal investigation. Since the attack, we have continued our activities in the rest of Afghanistan, with the exception of Kunduz, and we continue to engage with the U.S. and the Afghan governments to ask for explanations and to assess our pos possibility of returning to Kunduz. And just a few weeks ago, the U.S. released a very heavily redacted version of their internal investigation, which concluded that the attack on Kunduz was not a war crime as it was not intentional. Meanwhile, whilst we were very focused on the consequences and the aftermath of the attack on our facility in Kunduz, 12 hospitals were bombed in Syria, six of them supported by MSF. In 2015, in Syria alone, we recorded a shocking 94 attacks on 63 health facilities, with 23 staff killed and 50, 23 patients killed and 58 staff. Sorry, 23 staff killed and 58 patients wounded. And as I will come on to later, we we really one thing we are sure of is that that is the tip of the iceberg. Late October, in Yemen. A hospital supported by MSF in Hayden's province. Hayden province was targeted in an airstrike of the Saudi-led coalition. Patients and staff, fortunately there, were able to evacuate the building between strikes, but the bombing lasted for two hours, and the hospital was completely destroyed, which left 200,000 people in the province without access to medical care. Early December, another MSF clinic, this time in Taiz, the enclave, in southeastern Yemen, was hit by another airstrike, wounding nine people, and one of whom later died. On January the 10th, the Sharia Hospital, an MSF-supported facility in Raza district in northern Yemen, was also bombed, resulting in six deaths, eight injured. Between October 2015 and January 2016, in the months that followed the Kunduz attack, three MSF or MSF-supported hospitals were attacked. In February 2015, 
in February 2016, I should say, MSF-supported hospital in Idlib, Syria, was attacked. Um, and there, 25 people were killed, including nine staff members. This is a hospital that we've been supporting since two, September 2015 and covered all the needs of the facility, including the provision of medical supplies and running costs. Oops, sorry. Um, in 2015, MSF recorded a total of 106 attacks on 75 MSF-run or supported facilities. In January to February 2016, 14 aerial bombing and shelling attacks have hit 10 supported MSF hospitals in Syria and Yemen. The numbers are clearly very striking, but I don't want to blind you with the numbers because it's not necessarily helpful to conflate these different attacks together and look at them purely on the basis of numbers. The contexts and dynamics behind all of these attacks are clearly very different and they need to be analysed as such. Some are occurring as the consequence of counter-terrorism operations. Others are to deprive enemy-controlled territories of key infrastructures, and others still represent a strategy to make life unbearable for civilians. One question we are posing ourselves is whether this represents the most violent period in MSF's history. It's really difficult to speak of the trends as we don't have all the historical data and MSF has not been very good at tracking it, to be honest. Probably in terms of the greatest loss of life of staff and patients, the Rwanda genocide would still count as the single most violent period in our history. This is an attempt to create a typology of the type of incidents that we've been experiencing. Um, is it worse than before, what we're seeing today? I mean, I think this photo was a photo of a hospital that was destroyed in Vietnam. I mean, if we have a, a look back, a very quick look back at the 20th century, clearly in World War II, we saw hospitals bombed in Singapore, Hong Kong, Germany, and Japan. Since then, South Korea, Vietnam, former Yugoslavia, former Zaire, Israel, and the occupied Palestinian territories. So it's not necessarily a new phenomenon, and as this typology shows, the bombing and shelling of, of healthcare facilities is really only one of the form of violence against healthcare. In fact, compared to other forms of violence, it's less frequent if you compare it to burning and looting of health services, armed intrusions, harassment and persecution of staff. However, the difference with the bombing is, uh, of course, the consequences tend to be more catastrophic and, um, and, and, and obliterate the, the very minimal healthcare provision that already exists in, uh, in some of these conflict zones. So as I've already said, I think the most important thing, and as Mary referred to in her introduction, this is really a tip of the iceberg. And I think as MSF, we're wanting to bring the experience you know, our experience from the last year, because we, we have a platform, we have a voice, and we can use that platform to really be able to demonstrate the extent that modern conflicts, the extent of the, of the brutality that modern conflicts are exacting on, on the civilian population. Attacks on hospitals, again, is just one characteristic 
of, of today's conflict. We're also seeing attacks on schools, markets, place, markets, places of worship. The consequences. So obviously, huge suffering for the civilian population affected. As I've already described, patients and caretakers killed and wounded. Perhaps even more um, perhaps even more impactful for them, but far less easy to quantify, is the destruction resulting in the loss of access to services. In Kunduz, how many caesarean sections have we not been able to attend? How many car accident victims, let alone those, um, the newly war-wounded war that we are, we're no longer able to, to, to offer a, a service to? You'll have heard about this in the media. Obviously, the killing of very brave and irreplaceable medical staff. Um, Syria is really astounding for the bravery of those medics that are staying behind to offer, to offer the service that they can in the most kind of appalling and, and, and difficult circumstances. Um, Dr. Hassan, who was killed um, in, in North Syria... We knew personally he participated in an intersectional MSF meeting towards the end of 2015. He was killed, he was killed in a targeted attack by a missile, uh, missile outside Hammer Hospital. So why are hospitals important? Why are we drawing your attention to hospitals in particular? I mean, as I've described, the hospitals are only one element of, um, of, of violence against civilians. International humanitarian law, of course, gives protection to the broader civilian population, but it does give a special place to medical facilities. The Geneva Conventions were written partly to ensure that military personnel would be treated humanely once they were wounded and the medical personnel that fetched and cared for them would be protected in their task. But clearly, over and above the international legal framework, they have a symbolic value. People are at their most vulnerable when they seek care in a hospital. But the attacks that we're seeing today have, in some places, induced a pervasive fear of seeking healthcare services because by seeking healthcare, people are concerned that they will become a target. In one town in southern Syria, the citizens actually protested in front of a hospital to ensure that it would not reopen because they were so scared that if it reopened, it would draw fire and it would turn them into a target. In Yemen, we have mothers who are refu refusing to stay once they've delivered their baby. They immediately leave because they're so scared that that hospital will, will, will come under attack. The dynamics today, MSF fields are unprecedented, I would say, because I think we normally assume, as I showed a little bit in the typology, that non-state actors are the perpetrators of attacks on hospitals, medical facilities, or other, uh, other civilian infrastructure. But I think in the last year is, is, is really um, striking in that we have seen four out of five 
of the members of the UN Security Council, permanent members of the UN Security Council, involved in varying degrees with coalitions associated with bombing hospitals. So this, of course, is the very body that is mandated to protect and preserve peace and security. Contemporary warfare today is conducted through special operations and through aerial bombardment, with the enemy being considered as an irregular force. So this is the age of counter-terrorism and counter-insurgency operations. As a humanitarian actor working in a conflict, we consider that to be governed by international humanitarian law. Many of the governments that we are interacting with, that we're sharing a space with, may consider that conflict to actually be governed by counter-terrorism legislation. And we're, for us as a, as, a, as a non-military actor, it's very hard for us to understand exactly what that means and exactly what that means for protected facilities such as hospitals. And it's very difficult to get clear explanations as to whether we're all working to the same rule book. Clearly, as already described, we're seeing a challenge to international norms. I think it's true to say that there's never been a golden age for international humanitarian law. We can't kid ourselves that there was a, a, a point where everybody followed, followed the rules. But the extent to which it's being challenged today by states is perhaps unprecedented. And the other aspect that really concerns us is that in the meantime, they're also very busy chipping away at the Refugee Convention as well. So the two international legal frameworks that are designed to protect civilians in times of conflict, the ability of humanitarian actors like MSF to reach them or for them to be able to flee, to find protect, protection over, over an international border, are both essentially under attack. So what are we trying to do about this? So this was our commitment Following the attack on Kunduz, we decided that we wanted to really mobilize the MSF movement um, to, to make a contribution to ensure that the attacks on these medical facilities are prevented and that if they do occur, that we, exact some kind of we extract some kind of political cost in relation to them through public mobilization. And thus, you saw on the footage our international president, Dr. Liu, Dr. Joanne Liu, sitting in front of the UN Security Council, um, speaking after a new resolution had been adopted by, this, by, the, by the UN Security Council on May the 3rd, in which essentially they reaffirmed that medical facilities and indeed all civilian infrastructure should be protected at times of war. We sat together with the international president of the ICRC um, and, and, and spoke after that, after that resolution had, had been adopted. But to do that is not without its controversy inside MSF. And I wanted to just give a little bit of a, an insight into, into some of those controversies because we're not the ICRC. We're not the International Committee of the Red Cross. MSF was not uh, founded in order to promote um, the, the, the norms of, the norms of international, uh, international humanitarian law. We're a, we're a medical organization. And whilst we have our, we're founded on the same principles, we, we share humanitarian principles of neutrality, impartiality, and independence, it's, it's not our job to promote international humanitarian law. We have a colleague here from ICRC tonight, I see, who may, 
want to speak to that later. So it's, it was a real controversy inside MSF that we were willing to go and speak to the, to the Security Council in this way and essentially promote greater compliance, greater, under, yeah, greater, um, greater compliance and, and respect for uh, international humanitarian law. Instead, one other um, argument that's put forward is that we should be drawing on universal medical ethics. Uh, universal medical ethics oblige a doctor to treat the person in front of them, regardless of their political affiliation or any other issue. Essentially, if you have a wounded combatant in front of you as a doctor, you are obliged to treat them on the basis of your, your professional, professional medical ethics. But there's also a challenge as to whether those ethics are, are really universal. How do we seek accountability for attacks? And where do we draw the line between accountability and international justice? International justice is a process that MSF has remained wary of out of fear for what it means for our ability to negotiate access with the different warring parties that I've been describing. Because essentially, for those warring parties, if they consider that MSF staff may end up in court testifying against them, they're less likely to want to negotiate with them. So it's a very pragmatic concern. But we're also concerned for the politicization of, of international justice systems. And where would we go for such accountability anyway? On two occasions now, because we've also done it in response to an attack on one of the hospitals in Yemen, we called for this International Humanitarian Fact-Finding Commission to be activated, but to no avail, leading us to conclude that despite the 70-plus signatories that there are to that, that, that body, that it, it would seem to be rather an empty gesture. Even if we were able to revitalize the IHFFC, it operates in the most benign way imaginable. It can only be activated with the permission of the states concerned and its outcomes are only released to them. That doesn't match our calls for a transparent investigation. So should we add our voice to others calling for different accountability mechanisms such as special envoys, special rapporteurs or mandatory reporting mechanisms? Another debate that rages inside the organization is when we speak out about these different attacks. Our credibility in speaking out has been very much built on the fact that we are an organization that directly implements our medical humanitarian programs. We have staff on the ground. But yet today, in Syria in particular, Somalia could be another example, the levels of violence the levels of violence directed to humanitarian staff mean that we're not able to work directly inside Syria. So we're working indirectly. We're working in support of the, the pre-existing medical infrastructure, which was, as I'm sure you all know, a, a sophisticated one. But the lines become blurred then between what is an MSF facility and what is not. And what is our role then towards those medics who we may be supporting with salaries, with supplies, for example, or even for the medics in the hospital down the road who we're not directly supporting. Where do we draw the line in terms of using our voice to draw attention to the, to the attacks that they're, they're coming under? And when we're met with silence, denial, or justification of the attacks, do we name perpetrators, knowing that by doing so, we risk the very limited access 
that we already have, or potentially we even draw further fire. So despite all of those debates that are swirling around inside the organization, for those of you that know MSF, you know we're an organization that has a very active internal debating culture. This is what we're looking for. We are seeking a reaffirmation of the protection of the medical mission. We're seeking that because we do see it as symbolic and we do see it as a space that needs to be preserved. If you're really to, to keep that last vestige of humanity in the middle of, of, of very violent situations, that means we are defending IHL. It's actually all we have. It underpins our identity as an independent, neutral, and impartial humanitarian organization. And we have many instances where negotiating access through drawing upon those different principles has been effective. They're tools, that's all they are, but they are effective ones. We're seeking to remind warring parties that doctors are obliged to treat all in front of them, regardless of who they are, regardless of if they are labeled as a terrorist or as a criminal. And we are seeking accountability, but we're not seeking justice. We are seeking independent investigation that assigns responsibility as a way to build political pressure and to contribute towards preventing further attack. I just wanted to leave you with one small quote that I found in a very interesting article in The Leveller about the fact that um, attacks on hospitals is, is not a new phenomenon. A writer called Zachary Gallant. And he said, The truth of war is the hospital bombing. The truth of war is the massacre and the war rape and the child soldier. War is not defense but legalized violence against a vaguely defined other. The horror is the truth of war and not the exception. That may be true, but as a humanitarian organi medical organization, we have to fight for that last space to be able to bring care to those very vulnerable populations that are stuck in the middle of that horror. Well, thank you very much indeed, Vicky, for a very sad and depressing account. Um, and let's see if we can come up with any other alternatives from Stuart. Uh, normally, no. Uh, um, no, it was tremendously uh, sobering and a, and a completely tragic story. And what I'm going to try and do in, in five minutes or so is, is really just put some other ideas, uh, contextualise and provide a slightly wider, different um, perspective. Um, I think it's fair to say that, uh, as an academic, you can see that this uh, phenomenon of encroachment on the uh, principle of medical neutrality is becoming increasingly widespread. There are a wider range of actors, uh, armed actors, who are engaging in encroachments onto medical neutrality, and also the context in which they're doing so have broadened. Uh, they range from civil protest states uh, preventing medical access uh, for uh, protesters, counter-terrorist operations, uh, civil war, all the way through to international armed conflict itself.
Um, whilst there is a wide perception that it's uh, non-state armed groups that are principally responsible for this uh, growing uh, phenomenon, I think the reality is that we see states increasingly implicated. 95% of the attacks on medical facilities in uh, Syria, for example, are by the, the Assad regime. And what concerns me is that what we're seeing is is not simply the normal trajectory of warfare where abuses happen, uh, protests emerge, the law is tightened up and we see a gradual increase through uh, uh, an accretion of uh, norms and uh, practices of of, uh, positive norms of war. I think what we're seeing at the moment is the collapse, uh, or we risk seeing the collapse uh, of a norm of war that has its origins as far back, at least uh, uh, with the first Geneva Convention in the 1860s. I think it's also fair to say that uh, uh, it's become increasingly dangerous to be a doctor. Uh, Syria was the most dangerous place to be a doctor uh, in 2015. And looking at some of the data, uh, it's possible to see that between March 2011 and November 2015, uh, 336 attacks took place on 240 medical facilities, 697 medical staff were killed, uh, and 95% of the attacks were uh, um, uh, alleged to have been from Syrian government forces. But when you look back historically, you find that there are numerous examples in all of the contexts I mentioned before of um, states and non-state armed groups and civil protesters eroding the principle of non-state armed groups. Panama in the 1980s, uh, the government uh, at the time uh, harassed, intimidated and tortured uh, medics who spoke out against uh, the deteriorating health system. Uh, They blocked access to uh, injured protesters, Thailand, May 1992, and subsequently we've seen both the government and uh, civil society protesters uh, blocking access to medical facilities. Uh, El Salvador, uh, hospitals were attacked and sometimes bombed. Uh, Medical staff were frequently attacked, tortured, and murdered. Uh, Somalia, the former Yugoslavia, uh, the Vukovar Hospital, where 200 patients were uh, removed from the wards uh, and murdered by the Yugoslav National Army. Um, and uh, hospital staffs, uh, casts, IV lines, uh, surgical implements were all found in the grave, in the mass grave of the, uh, the 200 or so patients and hospital staff that were murdered. Mozambique, Chechnya, Bahrain, Syria, Libya, Mozambique, Sri Lanka, Russia, uh, Yemen, the Gaza Strip, uh, and Egypt. And I think what we're seeing is um, an increased set of phenomena of uh, non-state armed groups and state uh, actors and civil protesters um, uh, encroaching on uh, medical neutrality. So why are we increasingly seeing uh, medical neutrality uh, compromised? Well, I think academia has struggled, really, to uh, get a handle on the various reasons why medical neutrality is, uh, is compromised increasingly. Uh, One, there's a a gap in the evidence. There's very little evidence really collected to identify trajectories and trends. But secondly, the kind of causal models uh, are mixed up. It could be the resource inheritance of a particular conflict leading to uh, resource extraction and greater forms of barbarity. It could be the duration of a war, increasing levels of barbarism.
terrorism. It could be the pre-existing barbarism of a regime. It could be uh, the institutions in society at large. There's less likelihood to be this form of barbarism if the institutions of that society uh, were, were more developed and penetrated more into civil society. The non-state armed group may have a, a, a different set of objectives, wanting to be a proto-state, uh, and that might limit the amount of uh, uh, abuses of IHL generally. But it might also be a product of the humanitarian community, their uh, willingness and ability to construct a humanitarian principled position, uh, their ability to engage in forms of humanitarian diplomacy that carve out this confidence trick that's humanitarian um, space. It also raises questions of what the solutions are. Um, Do we need a uh, UN rapporteur on medical neutrality? Do we need the World Health Organization to collate patterns of abuse and to promote uh, uh, independent inquiries? Do we need them to engage in more uh, active forms of leadership? Um, is the U.S. Medical Neutrality Act of 2013, where um, uh, medical neutrality in U.S. foreign policy was seen as an objective, where the State Department was, into, uh, was meant to uh, keep lists of those countries that were failing in, uh, to uphold their responsibilities for medical neutrality and to begin a series of targeted sanctions? Is it prosecution via the ICC? Is it uh, some form of, uh, of independent fact-finding commission, as Vicky um, suggested? But it might also be simply a function that many of these wars are increasingly wars against civilians. And if medical neutrality is really a function of the rights others enjoy, then if other human rights and other rights under IHL are eroded, then why would we expect uh, the principle of medical immunity to do anything other than wax and wane in proportion to these other legal rights for the population at large? So the point is, if uh, human rights and IHL, um, if these rights guaranteed under those forms of legislation aren't absolute, then why would we expect medical immunity to be absolute as well. I think we also have to bear in mind um, that it's fair to say that uh, the Geneva Conventions, which established the principle of medical neutrality, um, weren't simply a kind of normative uh, Damascene moment where the world suddenly woke up to human rights and forms of IHL. They were in many ways a transactional bargain. The benefits of the transaction uh, were felt by armies, which is why the states themselves uh, signed the first Geneva Convention, which enshrined a form of medical um, neutrality. So if that bargain, where both sides benefit from forms of medical immunity and medical neutrality, if both sides don't see that bargain as providing the benefits that it did in the 1860s, why would they uphold that bargain? And certainly there is a perspective that in wars against civilians and wars that are asymmetric in nature, uh, guerrillas and non-state armed groups uh, have less benefit from upholding uh, medical neutrality. But equally states, um, with uh, little to fear in terms of international opprobrium for attacking medical facilities, might find that in global wars on terror or wars of national interest, um, then there are significant benefits from encroaching on medical neutrality. 
So perhaps the concern is that the nature of warfare has changed. So the transactional uh, nature of the uh, Geneva Conventions is no longer delivering the benefits. Well, if that's the case, how do we respond? We have to increase the costs of failing to uphold medical neutrality. And then it's a question of what does international civil society do in order to do that? Thank you. Thank you you very much. Um, I just want to say one thing and actually ask Vicky... A question. Poor Vicky's suffering from her cold. Um, I'm, what I wanted to say, well, actually, it's two things. I mean, Vicky mentioned that international, it's not just international humanitarian law, it's also the Refugee Convention. But I think it's also all of the laws associated with the use of force are being chipped away. Uh, We're also seeing, I mean, at the end of the Second World War, war was prohibited except in cases of self-defense or if approved by the Security Council. And we're finding more and more states adopting expansive notions of preemptive self-defense or defense of nationals, as uh, Putin has put it in the case of Crimea. So we're seeing a chipping away of the whole body of international law associated with war. And I, the other point I wanted to make, which is linked to this, is that actually, of course, this didn't start with uh, the Geneva Conventions. Um, every religious and cultural tradition had a, a set of humanitarian rules. They really go back to the... You can read it in the Battle of the, the Mahabharata in the Hindu tradition. You can go back to the first caliph um, in the beginning of the Muslim tradition. You can go back to the Judaic tradition. All of them had this notion of the immunity of combatants. I don't know whether they all specifically mentioned medical care, but there were a whole lot of things they mentioned. And one has to be aware of the fact that part of this was to make war a legitimate activity. It wasn't just about protecting civilians. It was also about saying... Soldiers who go to war are not just murderers. They're not just killers. They're also, uh, they're legitimate, they're killing in a legitimate way. So international humanitarian law has always had this double facet. And I think what is happening at the moment um, is actually the delegitimization of war. By ignoring international humanitarian law, it's actually no longer possible to say war is legitimate. And I think that's the one thing we should kind of hold on to because that might provide a basis for rethinking a lot of the laws that we face. I mean, we have seen since the end of the Second World War the growth of human rights law, which is supposed to stop during war because international humanitarian law comes into place. But I think that's the direction maybe we should be thinking about. And then I had some very specific questions to Vicky, some of which actually Stuart have answered. But I was really interested in, you know, MSF refused to participate in the World Humanitarian (laughs) Congress. Summit, summit. Summit. And I'd really like to hear about the reasons for that. And what have you done about, I mean, in the past... Uh, organizations like MSF would give their coordinates to the various warring parties so they avoid them. So have you stopped doing that? What happens now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
So those would be my two questions to start off, and then I'll bring all of you in. Okay, all right. Um, coordinates. Uh, maybe just to say one thing on the um, rethinking IHL and, and, and the Refugee Convention. I mean, I, I think that um, we would be very concerned at the moment that you would end up with less than you started with, yeah. given the phenomenon that you've talked about in terms of um, the erosion of uh, the minimum that we do have, I think there's a real risk if you start unpacking it um, that, that we'll end up with far less than we started with. I mean, I think that there would be many governments around the world, including this country, that would love to get their teeth into the Refugee Convention. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I agree And we that. risk starting agree. something there that we yeah. may not be very happy that, <laughs> yeah, that we did. Um, the World Humanitarian Summit. So there is a link to the issues that we're talking about tonight in terms of our non-attendance at the World Humanitarian Summit. So we um, did participate in the process and we engaged in the some of the cons, not all of them, there were many, but we engaged in some of the consultations in the run-up to the summit itself and we have put in some position papers that are publicly available in terms of what we would like to see being prioritized at the summit. Um, but over, yeah, over a period of 18 months, we um, became more and more concerned about what we felt was a lack of focus on core humanitarian issues. And that was really then um, sort of the, the seal, I guess, was almost put on it when we, uh, the Secretary General's report um, that uh, in the run-up to the summit very much geared the summit's agenda around longer-term processes of development, of peace-building, of resilience. Ending need became the mantra. And MSF is an organization with actually a, a limited ambition. It is to deliver where there is need and to meet those needs in the immediate, I say the immediate, there's many countries we've been working in for decades, but to really meet the most immediate humanitarian needs. That's not to say peace building, development, resilience are all very you know, worthy objectives in their own right, but don't bring them into a humanitarian summit, because if you do, you, you, you limit our ability you, to, to actually negotiate with some of the parties that control access to populations that may not see any of those things as in their interests. So I talked about our renegotiated, um, our, our, our efforts to renegotiate access to Afghanistan. Um, and this is going back, uh, yeah, a number of years now, eight years or so. But um, certainly the Taliban did not see the state-building process of Afghanistan as in their interests. So if MSF was associated with that, we can be sure that our efforts to negotiate access with them wouldn't have got very far. Um, so for MSF, it is important to separate those processes. It's not to say that one is more worthy than the others, not at all. It's not a valuable judgment. They're both necessary, but don't conflate them. So that was the first reason. The second reason is really linked to what we're talking about tonight. We lost real conviction in the process. We lost conviction because we would have been sitting at the same table as many of those same states that have been doing that damage that I showed to you tonight. And we've been, we were being asked to make commitments about our uh, respect and um, 
our efforts to deliver humanitarian assistance. Ultimately, we are not the primary duty bearers. That, that's in the hands of states. And we felt that for humanitarian organizations to be asked to make these commitments, it was essentially an illusion, if you like, um, where, and, and, and letting states off the hook of some of the, some of the things that I've, I've showed to you tonight in terms of taking real responsibility for, for their actions. Um, in terms of coordinates, uh, there are the majority of places where we, in fact, everywhere where we directly work, we share coordinates with the warring parties. Where we are indirectly supporting facilities, we leave that in the hands of those that are running those facilities, that decision. And for sure, there are many of our Syrian colleagues who are not sharing coordinates because they feel that to do so puts them directly in the line of fire. Thank you very much. Now, who would like to ask questions from the audience? The gentleman over there. My name is Marcus Geis. I work for the ICS here, for the International Committee of the Red Cross here in London, but I'm here also as Marcus Geis. So. You're here as well? <laughs> so it's maybe himself. the first point is actually for Professor Caldor. Yes, maybe I got your point wrong. The chipping away of the law, if I look at the history of actually piling up more and more law, especially the last 20 years, I see the landmine treaty, I see the arms trade treaty, I see the cluster uh, uh, bomb uh, 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 convention. So I wouldn't really say there's an erosion of law, there's actually more and more law. What actually is much more concerning is there is an erosion of the respect of the law. I think that's an important clarification, and I may, be, I may have gotten you totally wrong here. And then I think the, the last, my second point is more of a, uh, of a, of a, of a comment, and I mean, uh, the ICC uh, president was with the MSF president in the Security Council a few weeks ago, so all what Vicky said, of course, I, I fully agree, and I think the real challenge is, is this transaction costs that the respect of the law has. I think the transaction costs may be kind of different when states sign those whatever treaty I have just mentioned. I think the transaction costs for humanitarians on the ground to make respect the law, this is where it really gets complicated. And I think Afghanistan is, is a good example uh, when humanitarians have to really protect a hospital, yes, have to allow patients from all conflict parties coming into the hospital. And I can speak now, now I speak as Markus Geiser from personal experience in Afghanistan as well, where indeed supporting a public hospital, yes, that's what the ICC did, uh, posed all kind of uh, problems, yes, because the Taliban would say, oh my God, how, how can you do that? So you, you, what you need to find is to negotiate this access to the hospital for parties, for, for, for members of, 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 of other groups. And I think that works, that was pretty complex in Afghanistan, and I stop now, with just a couple of war-waging parties, the Taliban and a few factions, and the, Tali and the Afghan authorities, not always so coherent as we probably think they are. Uh, but I'm sure that these transaction costs to keep 
uh, a medical space as neutral as possible in a context like Syria, where you have got hundreds of groups, may, we may have indeed faced, at, at, at times we probably face a limit here, yes, because we cannot uh, uh, open one hospital after the other just to please one, one, war, one war waging party after the other. Yes. So I think the transaction costs on the ground, it is really a complication that we will have to live with. I have no particular answer to that, yes, apart from what Vicky said, we just carry on one way or the other, yes, because this is what we are here as humanitarians. Thank you. Okay, Would, let, let's take some answers since, um, and then we'll come back to the audience. Do you want to add, add anything about transaction costs? Um, yeah, ju just very, very quickly. I think, I think Marcus's point is a, 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 an understandably good one in both his capacities uh, this evening, uh, personally and for the ICRC. And what struck me is that um, the, the challenge of gaining access has been one that perhaps the humanitarian community hasn't always risen to. And there's been a tremendous focus on the securitization of humanitarian assistance by major donors involved in the global war on terror, the proliferation of fragmented non-state armed actors such as the Taliban, Al-Shabaab, um, and so forth. But another part of the puzzle of access has been, are you able to convince the, uh, the belligerents that you're in fact a principled humanitarian actor that will work in uh, an impartial way? Um, and by gaining impartiality you then gain immunity on the battlefield so it's that sense that there is a direct correlation between your success in demonstrating impartiality and neutrality and that providing you and that space um, with immunity and I think the challenge of doing that has been one that many multi-mandate uh, non-governmental organizations have really struggled to rise to. Um, it's been a real challenge for many organizations to demonstrate that they're not engaged with their donors' political uh, objectives. Um, and it's also been a challenge because they have, have uh, often reacted to situations of chaos by either withdrawing to what Mark Duffield describes as, as humanitarian bunkers and then subcontracting through uh, local staff and therefore they're subcontracting the risk as well. Um, or they have um, simply withdrawn and uh, uh, humanitarian uh, responses suffered as a result. And very few organizations, and ICRC and MSF are probably uh, uh, amongst the very limited number that have done so. Um, ICRC and MSF have tended, uh, ICRC in particular, to invest in forms of humanitarian diplomacy, engaging with often very fragmented non-state armed actors in order to construct this imaginary of neutral, impartial, independent action and and cashing that in as a form of medical uh, immunity on the battlefield. So I, I think we focus too much perhaps on looking at the, the supply side of danger, uh, the non-state armed groups and the, uh, and the states, and we haven't looked enough at the kind of um, uh, images that are projected by 
by some of these new humanitarian organizations. And I think Vicky's point as well about the humanitarian summit is an interesting one because I, as a political scientist, I would see this as a, a, a struggle for the soul of humanitarianism. Humanitarianism has always been about defining certain problems as worthy of a humanitarian response, putting a, uh, a kind of boundary around those problems and then putting a boundary around those organizations that are considered humanitarian. And historically, it's been the ICRC that have been seen as occupying that space. But I think what the World Humanitarian Summit has, has demonstrated is that, that that set of boundaries of humanitarianism are being policed by different actors. Um, and traditional actors are, are very uncomfortable about the space that was staked out as being humanitarian in the World Humanitarian Summit. Um, I don't know if Vicky wants to come back on that one. Well, I'm going to let her in. <laughs> I, I was going to pick up on the point about transaction costs. I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to trying to create. Um, I mean, that's why I'm here talking to you tonight and trying to really convey, you know, some of what we've experienced this year to to create a public mobilisation, if if you like, around around the issue. Um, I mean, Yemen. You know, of those uh, four members of the P5, of course, one of them is our own government, um, and their, 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 their implication is in the support that they give to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. I mean, the UK is playing a role, tacit or otherwise, in terms of the bombing of healthcare infrastructure in Yemen. Um, we are seeing uh, some very effective civil society civil society or mobilization around that in terms of the work that the campaigns against the arm trade are doing but you know some some more outrage on the side of the british population in terms of our own government's role in the conflict there i i i think would be very welcome to uh you know to to let the politicians know that actually we don't appreciate the uk which which describes itself as being a real promoter. And, you know, we set the bar very high in terms of our own, uh, in terms of the way we promote international norms to others. Um, but, but, but yet at the moment, given our role in Yemen, I think it's very hard for the UK to hold the moral high ground in relation to, to attacks that are, that are going on elsewhere. I think that's a really important point um, and I think one of the problems about the transactional cost argument is that in asymmetric co conflicts there is no mutuality the point that um, Stuart was making that actually the Saudis and the Syrian government don't have to worry about their own medical facilities yeah. um, so it's yeah. deeply yeah. problematic yeah, exactly. and that really yeah. relates to the point that was made to me. I mean, just to formulate it slightly differently, I think international law, the, the bulk of international law was designed around interstate wars in Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries. And the kind of wars that we're seeing now simply fits rather badly. And actually what you're seeing is law being adapted in all sorts of different ways. So yes, you're right, there are sort of new laws like cluster munitions, there are peace agreements which count as the law of war. 
law of peace. So there are all sorts of new directions, but they're going off in lots of different directions. Uh, and I think the really dangerous aspect at the moment is the way the predominant state views are being slowly, you know, the predominant old-fashioned law relating to old-fashioned wars is, is really getting weakened. And I do want to add that I do actually agree with Vicky that it, I, I'm not suggesting that we do away with it. I'm suggesting that we complement it by some very strong, much stronger rules about relating to human rights, that human rights in a way trumps these other laws, although these other laws offer very specific protections mm. that are really important. Now, more questions from the floor. Yes, down there. And are there any others? Come, who, so let's take two at a time. Yeah, so my question is related to, I think, both Vicky and what you just pointed out about it being a riskier world and people not following humanitarian laws or the parties not following humanitarian laws because of the fact that um, at least one of the fighting forces is more irregular these days, uh, not really a state. Uh, but uh, how do you then, even in that case, justify that... Um, the fact that we have seen attacks from uh, state forces and coalition forces, say from the U.S., you also mentioned that most of the most of the attacks on hospitals in Syria were actually uh, done by the Assad, Assad regime, right? So, yeah. are we saying that because one party is not a regular force, the other party kind of you know relieves themselves of the responsibility because they're not held by like you know that force to kind of hold it? Oh, gosh, that has a terrifying implications, doesn't it? Let's, uh, let, let's take this person at the back here. Can you wave at me? Hello, my name is Rolf. I'm a student here at the LSE. I have a question for Wiki. Um, a couple of days ago, there was a lengthy article in the New York Times looking at the uh, uh, events in Afghanistan. Um, the essence of the article was um, trying to figure out if eventually actually the um, Afghan forces were motivated to um, initiate the attack uh, on the uh, hospital. So I am very interested in uh, your thoughts um, on that uh, site. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's take this lady here. We'll take three at once. Hi, thank you. Um, I was quite inspired by the metaphor about the struggle for the soul of humanitarianism. So if I f had to think of a metaphor for Vicky's presentation, it's almost mourning the loss of innocence. So is there any way to go back once the gene is out of the bottle? Is there any innocence that we can recover? If I look at your first objective, seek reaffirmation of the protection of the medical mission, it's almost wanting that innocence land again. So, yeah, it's a big question. Thank you. Okay, I'll go the other way around this time and start with Vicky. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe I'll just, I'll just take the Kunda's question, first of all, as it's, as it's clearly very direct. Um, so, I think it was about six weeks ago, the U.S. released the full 
version of their internal investigation, of course, heavily redacted. So um, we have the full report, but much of it you, you can't read. Um, we're still making our way through that report. It's 700 quite heavy pages. It's not easy reading. A lot of military acronyms and things that we just, we're not familiar with. Um, the New York Times article, of course, was uh, drawing upon that report. And um, yes, the, the, the journalist in question um, has introduced what for us was a new element, um, which is that the, the description of the building, you saw the photo of what the trauma center looked like, that, um, that the helicopter gunship was given a description of the building that matched that of our hospital and didn't match that of the headquarters of the National Directorate of Security, whatever the Afghan acronym stands for, Stuart probably knows. So the U.S. said that the intended target was um, a, security, a, a, a security headquarters that the Taliban had taken over, yet the description actually matched that of the hospital, and that description was given by Afghan sources. There are alternative or there are other parts of the report which say that the, um, the, the, the U.S. were also relying on their own intelligence. So essentially, it remains very unclear to us. There is definitely a new element that has been introduced with the release of that report, um, but we are still going through it and trying to, um, yeah, trying to kind of understand what it means. And we will then go back to the U.S. and to the Afghan governments with our questions. But we are definitely left with many questions. And for one thing is for certain that this narrative of it being a mistake has not satisfied us. We think there are enough elements out there to, uh, yeah, to let, you know, really question that explanation of the circumstances of the attack. Um, in terms of the question about um, do, do governments sort of relieve themselves of their responsibilities towards international law, um, I mean, that I think in some contexts that's definitely a valid uh, would be a valid account of why certain attacks are happening. And I think that's really our question mark in Afghanistan and in relation to the Kunduz attack. Um, it's no secret, we've been very public about the fact that we were treating combatants. We were treating combatants from both sides of the conflict. Um, there, the, there were about 180 patients in the hospital that night. I think about five of them were uh, Afghan military personnel, 20 of them were from the opposition, were from the Taliban. The numbers had actually been skewed the previous direction, more Afghan military in the hospital in the previous days. Um, but as the Taliban took Kunduz, they kind of evacuated their personnel. But clearly, you know, vast majority of civilians, and even if there wasn't, it is a doctor's obligation to treat those combatants in the same way that they would any other patients. So certainly we are concerned that in the context of Afghanistan that the counter-terrorism narrative dominated and that uh, the US and the Afghan governments relieved themselves of their responsibilities as a result. I think there are other contexts where there is a, 
you know, there's there's just a, something different going on. I mean, I think in Yemen you clearly have, you know, an all-out bombing campaign which is has no regard for civilian or not infrastructure. In Syria, you have a, a more deliberate targeting of medical facilities that are seen to, that are working in in opposition-held areas. So I, I, you can't put it down to one factor or another. But certainly, what you're talking about. We are concerned is a feature in some of the conflicts that we're working in today. Um, and in terms of mourning the loss of innocence, I mean, at the Security Council, it May the third, I, I don't have the exact number, but you know there were forty plus states present that that day that reaffirmed their commitment to the protection of medical facilities and to the protection of medic of civilian infrastructure generally. Um, <laughs> Maybe I mean you know that that's not a new a new uh, that's that's not a new commitment on their part. They're already committed to doing that, but getting them to reaffirm that publicly, we felt was very important. So certainly, at least the rhetoric uh, tells us that there you know there is a there is a commitment to that. And of course, now we need to see how that you know how that works in practice. Um, certainly, the bombing of the refugee camp in Idlib a few days later was not a very good signal. Um, but, uh, yeah, but I, I don't think the government in question was sitting around the table that day. Um, so, you know, it, it is, whilst whilst we are uh, cynical, let's say, about the, um, yeah, about what international norms mean in practice, we still feel it's important to get people to, to reaffirm their commitment to it. And now we need, you know, to publicly hold governments like this one, to account on that. They've been part of that vote. What does that mean for their support to the Saudi-led coalition in, in Yemen? Do you want to add anything, Stuart? Just a couple of quick points, I think. Um, the, the question about the genie being out of the bottle, um, I thought was a really interesting one. But, um, and and it, raises, it sort of links to the points that Marcus uh, made as well. Um, uh, norms wax and wane, and humanitarianism and what counts as humanitarian action uh, changes uh, over time from its sort of origins in the anti-slavery uh, uh, movement through to sort of Victorian reform uh, and then the emergence of uh, a, a sort of medical provision on the battlefields of the 1850s and the 1860s. So um, what counts as humanitarian action and what counts as humanitarian actors um, do change. And, and really what struck me about Vicky's presentation was the sense that this was an arms race. It, it was an arms race between um, groups that had an interest in redefining norms of medical neutrality in ways that allowed them to operate in accordance with their definition of national interest and the need for civil society and um, other forms of society to engage in, in a counter move to reassert uh, the principles of a rules-based international system and the way in which warfare should ideally be uh, be waged. If you accept that it is possible to wage wars, that they are inevitable, um, but you, you also accept that there are limits that need to be in place, um, then those pushing for the limits need to mobilize and to make that point actively. Because when states become involved, uh, they're often looking for latitude and freedom of action. Um, so it really is vital to find a way of upholding the norms of medical neutrality. And it is about putting pressure on states. Um, 
But it's also about perhaps exercising pressure, uh, medical solidarity with other medical practitioners. And what struck me was in Bahrain and, um, and Egypt and other cir- circumstances where medical practitioners have been prevented by their governments from providing medical assistance to those engaged in protests against the government, there are doctors that fell on both sides of that. Uh, that fault line. You had doctors who would deny medical assistance to protesters, and you had doctors that were incredibly brave and would provide medical assistance even at grave personal uh, personal risk. So th- this is a struggle. It's not just about uh, strengthening IHL so that non-state armed groups have the same sets of obligations as states. It's not simply about putting on pressure onto states themselves. It's about a multi-pronged approach to raise the transaction costs of abuses of, um, uh, of medical ethics. So it's an arms race. It's not a sort of a apocalyptic vision of IHL falling apart for me. Um, it's much more about a, a set of political struggles uh, and really um, through the uh, flu-like haze that no doubt is <laughs> confronting poor Vicky at the moment. Um, this was a kind of clarion call for, uh, for civil society to increase those, um, those transaction costs. Um, I must say I agree very much with both of you. I just wanted to add, I mean some of you may have seen Obama going to Hiroshima um, yesterday or the day before on the television for which he did not apologize. And if you think about Hiroshima, 130,000 people, mostly almost entirely civilians, were killed on a single night. So in terms of whether things are riskier or not, I think, you know, one thing one might say in an optimistic sense is that our sensitivities about this have grown enormously. I mean, we do, we, we do see what happens. We do care about human rights to a much greater extent um, than at that time. So I think that's a kind of really important point to bear in mind. I mean, we, we're drawing attention to the most terrible things that are happening in the world. But in historical terms, we shouldn't think they're any worse than in historical terms, and linked to that is the fact that I think the experience of the 1990s showed that when states do cooperate, it's possible to reduce conflicts a great deal. And we've seen what can happen when Russia and the United States agree, whether it's on chemical weapons or on a ceasefire in Aleppo. Uh, Of course, it's not being sustained, and Russia's not... You know, that pressure isn't existing, but, you know, that it is possible. And the same, I think, ought to be true of Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's partly our stupid economic interests in selling arms to Saudi Arabia. I was very struck to see the government saying piously, we went through all the proper arms export control criteria, <laughs> which is really um, just absurd. The other thing that I wanted to say was that I think in the case of the US, there's a huge problem when they do bombing or drone attacks is that they rely incredibly on top-down intelligence and on technical intelligence. So, you know, somebody tells you that uh, this is a security center or whatever. I mean, that may not be the explanation. There may be something much more sinister. 
Um, and you believe it, but if you had any decent local knowledge, you would know that's not true. And, and you can find so many examples of where the Americans have killed people based on their kind of top-down intelligence where anyone on the ground could have told them it was something different. So there's also a real deep problem in the way intelligence is gathered, which I think is a very important point that ought to be made over and over again. More questions? Yes, the lady there. I've got... I, I, I might have used it. I have a... I have a question about uh, kind of the economic interests that some countries have. I've been reading John Perkins's Confessions of an Economic Hitman, so I've become very kind of skeptical of U.S. foreign policy decisions and the fact that they are sometimes too focused on economic gains. So I'm wondering if you suspect that some of these bombings might have some connection to economic gains that maybe isn't so obvious, but if you kind of dig deeper could explain why... <laughs> they would make this kind of mistake that maybe wasn't such a mistake after all. Um, any other questions? Yeah. I think we'll have this as the last round. I was quite struck by your point about um, people avoiding going into hospitals as a result of the bombing um, campaigns that have been going on. Um, but I was wondering if you've seen any effect on people willing to and work for, associate themselves um, with MSF as a result of what's been going on. Anybody else? Yes, the lady at the back here. Hi. Um, so we've been talking a lot about um, international law. Um, when you're dealing with wars that have a lot of non-state actors involved, do we have any structures in place where we can hold them accountable to these sorts of standards that they never agreed to? <coughs> Do we have any pressures where we can try to encourage them to follow these humanitarian laws? Okay. Who wants to start? You're looking at me, so I guess I it's... Uh, you, I think that would be a very good idea. Okay, I'm going to start with two. One on the economic games and one on non-state actors. So... On the economic gains, I think there are. I think what one has to understand is the structure, if you like, of uh, the American, the, what we would probably call the military-industrial complex, but the sort of vested interest in aircraft and drones, which is not only economic; it's also domestic, political. I mean, so the U.S. said we're going to withdraw. Obama wanted to get his troops out of Afghanistan, but wanted to show that he was still strong, so he wanted a bombing and a drone campaign. And I think these kinds of considerations, domestic political considerations, but also the sort of pressures that come from the aerospace industries and the defense industries to go on producing particular types of weapons and to say that they're useful gets kind of embedded in the thinking in the United States, equally in Russia and in China. I mean, I call it culture, really, that there's a sort of very specific security culture that has both economic and political mechanisms that embed ways of doing things. So, yes, I think there are economic gains, but there are also political gains. But I think the important issue is that these things are thought in a domestic context. It's 
all the concern is about the domestic concept context, winning elections, getting the support of various lobbyists, rather than thinking about the situation of Afghan people and having a much more um, public-minded orientation in what we do, which is, for me, why institutions like the United Nations or NGOs like MSF are so incredibly important, because they are thinking in those terms and changing the way we think about how we should do those things. And on non-state actors, I mean, I think one of the big achievements of the last 20 years was the establishment of the International Criminal Court. Uh, um, The problem is that while it started with great fanfare, it's been terribly disappointing. It's been very slow, very cumbersome. Lots of real, really terrible murderers and criminals have been acquitted because it didn't meet the standards of evidence. But I think also within the International Criminal Court, there's been incredible nervousness about how far you can go without then implicating people like President Bush or Tony Blair. And so, because if you are going to indict individuals, it's not only the non-state actors, it's also the people responsible. I mean, Assad is clearly a war criminal of the greatest order. And I think there's great nervousness. So this is, I think... This provides limits to the accountability of non-state actors in wartime. Do you want to add? You might want to just say some general last things. Uh, Just maybe respond directly to the question about people working for MSF. Um, I mean, so far, I I don't think we've seen any drop-off in interest in people actually, yeah, in people working for us. But of course, what... It, it, it becomes more difficult to, um, for both both for the organisation to assume the responsibility, but also for people to take the decision to go and work in Afghanistan or to go and work in Yemen. I mean, our, our the yeah the, the projects that we're running in Yemen are, are hard to staff, um, partly because we don't tend to we try not to send certain nationalities because we think they're going to be high risk for kidnap. Um, but, but, yeah, but also just because people just generally are quite, quite reasonably <laughs> quite scared to go. Um, so, so in terms of the overall interest in the organisation, no, but in terms of working in some of the more insecure environments that we're working in, yes. Just a, a quick one, really, on the, the International Criminal Court. I, I thought it was quite interesting this week with the, um, the successful prosecution of uh, Hussein Habre uh, of Chad for the um, uh, awful crimes uh, he committed or his regime uh, committed. But what's also quite interesting there, I think, is the way in which uh, this court, uh, African Union-backed uh, court in Senegal, um, was in some ways a rival to the ICC uh, and was backed by uh, a number of African states in the United States uh, as a way of bringing Hussein Habre to uh, to 
uh, account, but was also a way of demonstrating justice outside of and potentially weakening the ICC, where real effort perhaps should have gone into um, managing the shortcomings of the ICC, uh, legitimizing it in uh, 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 more carefully, so it's not simply seen as a, a, a Western instrument, uh, and also making sure that procedurally and in terms of funding, it, uh, it improves its performance. And what really concerns me is that the kind of profusion of, of uh, forms of international justice are, are, are a worrying attempt to forum shop by states rather than uh, an attempt to really reinforce forms of rule-based um, international uh, uh, relations and activity. So the profusion of these courts is less about enhancing IHL. It's more about undermining some of the least politically acceptable forms of, uh, of justice mechanisms. So that, that really does concern me. Uh, and also just a quick point about uh, the, uh, the bombings. Drone warfare, um, if you're flying out of uh, Nevada or Saudi Arabia and you're bombing Syria or, 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 or Kunduz with a, with a drone, uh, I wonder if you're not simply physically detached, but you're also potentially morally detached. And if much of your intelligence is electronic or satellite-based imagery, uh, and much of your means of delivering power is depersonalized and, and technologized, uh, I wonder if that has a, a, a real impact on your willingness to take precautionary measures to accept um, uh, risks which perhaps face-to-face uh, -face soldiers relying on aircraft uh, having to visually identify targets at a very personal level whilst in sort of harm's way, uh, perhaps those, uh, those days invited more morality than perhaps these, uh, uh, these, these new technologies. Gosh, well, we could go on for ages. I've got lots of other thoughts, but we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much, Vicky, for coming amidst your horrible cold. And thank you very sorry, much sorry to, to the audience. We're, we, usually, we usually have great difficulty in the summer term. I, I think the ex most of the exams are finished now, but nevertheless, people are all fleeing away. But you've all come and listened, so thank you very much. <laughs>